come on, play something for the man. Welcome to the Soapbox. Uh, I'm Reverend Dranglebones, here with Kurt Huggins, and Kurt's uh, laughing at me being official right now, and it's going to make me too. Uh, today we're talking about Aguirre, the Wrath of God, uh, Ein Thum von Werner Herzog from 1972, starring Klaus Kinski and some other people that were pretty good, but whose names I will not remember. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a really really crazy movie i think there's going to be a lot of random uh anecdotes in this because i'm a huge uh herzog nerd I said, <laughs> well um since i had never seen this before um and honestly i haven't seen that many warner's herzog movies uh the main one I've seen is Nosferatu, which is also an incredible movie, also with Klaus Kinski. Um, <clears throat> uh, but uh, so I didn't really know what to expect with this, you know, because I hadn't, like I said, I am not as familiar with Herzog's directing work. Uh, I have, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that has felt more dangerous than people making it. Like it really comes across like like this this could go poorly at any time while they're making this. Um, it, it's uh, and it's it's also it's also fascinating because it's, it's this total period piece of these conquistadors in uh, I don't know where where exactly in South America, but they're 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 going in pursuit of trying to find El Dorado, the city of gold. Um, and the movie sort of starts with they almost they almost descend from the heavens like aliens because it starts with this like scene of like the cloudy mountains and them and again that sense of danger like is there right at the beginning where they're filming this just chain of people carrying odd odd like cannons and wheels and and they're on these very tiny narrow rock paths and you're like how are they filming this and 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 it just looks like at any moment they could topple off and like tumble to their doom. Um, but so yeah, so they 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 descend from the heavens and then they land and then they basically it's almost like it's almost like alien the Anunnaki descend from the heavens to collect their gold and they're they're like we need to build uh, we need to build scout a scout scout ships to go and and, and find our gold so. so it's this really weird thing where then it's this giant procession of conquistadors and the Peruvians, I think, that they've enslaved. And then they break off this much tinier part of themselves to go and forage up the river to try to find El Dorado. And that's where the insanity really starts to kick off. Um, and it's, there's, so two things that are really surprising. So this is, this is an historical drama but it's shot like a documentary. Mm. 
Um, it, so it, it feels, it, and that in itself is kind of, I don't know if that adds to the quality of it dangerous or if it's just, I don't know, it, it makes it more immediate in a way because this, most historical movies are shot with very classic rigid film structure. Like you, like they set up the shots, you know, they have to build crazy sets. So like everything is very organized and structured. And uh, so that, and then that, that's sort of the, the language of, of historical movies. That's how things are done. They're, you know, they're very prestigious and like, and, and stayed and controlled. And that's not this movie at all. In fact, um, based on what you were telling me, like a bunch of it is improvised. Actually, um, upon watching the full commentary yesterday, which is on YouTube for anyone interested, I highly recommend it. Watch the regular, watch the film first and then watch the commentary because it's, it's like watching a really amazing movie and then immediately watching a better movie than the original about that first movie. Oh, I'm gonna have to dive into this. I've always loved film commentary, so. It's, it's unbelievable. It's so pretty much all the things that I thought were planned were improvised and all the things that you like think were improvised were planned. Hmm. Uh, well, I'll, I'll point some of the things out as we go if I remember them, but um, so, her was a direct quote of him from this uh, was from this commentary was storyboarding is a disease of Hollywood. It's a disease of what? Hollywood. Okay. And um, like that that first scene, uh, and I believe it is Peru that they filmed at least that first part. I'm not sure about. I think some of the river stuff was elsewhere, but I, I know. Um, I'm pretty sure that was Peru. And so there, there, I, you start off with this scene where there's, there's no perspective, right? There's no, there's absolutely no um, sense of scale. There's nothing recognizable, just, just wilderness, um, just impossible looking wilderness. And you can't really even tell what angles are which until the like little line of ants starts appearing. I'm still listening. My dog needs water. Give me yeah. Take care of the pooch. You gotta love your dog. <clears throat> and uh, so you don't really have any sense of scale until the people show up and then they get closer and closer to the camera. And like, he didn't, he didn't plan any of that. He just set up and saw the shot and took it. Just told them what to do on the fly. Um, kind of literally marching around with these people like the conquistador himself. Um, leading these people, an eight-man film crew uh, with all these, you know, these workers or these, these extras he picked up that a lot of them, you know, could not understand him. Um, and he said, he, he said it's fine directing people that don't speak the language that you speak, uh, which I thought was really interesting. He's like, I, you know, I, I figured it out. It was, it was okay. Um, and uh, I think he was 27 or 28 years old at the time. Um, and yeah, so they flew, they flew into the jungle. First of all, it, it is, it is historical. Um, but they like Herzog heard of, he found a document. I forget how, how or where he was. He found a document that it was a partial document that is 
a record of this actual thing that happened. And, but that's all there is, right? It's just this tiny little fragment of a document saying that a conquistador, this conquistador was being, they were being sent off. And that this thing, uh, I think it says something about it going awry, like someone else being a traitor, um, someone in the group. And like that just sparked something in him. And he wrote the whole screenplay within, he didn't write a script. He didn't write a script at, at all. Hmm. There was no script. He just had like little notes for what kind of needs to be exchanged in each scene. And he wrote the uh, screenplay within two and a half days and then scrounged up some money, $350,000 and literally couldn't have done it in a studio because it would have eaten the whole budget just to rent the studio time. So it was cheaper to go to the jungle uh, and risk his life. But it was also part of the thesis like of how he makes films is just make something real and let life happen because it's interesting on its own. And, um, and you see that in like all the little scenes where there's the wildlife, like the little sloth, the miniature sloth that sleeps half its life and, and the butterfly that the guy's holding. Like that's all just stuff that happened. And he's like, drop everything. This is what we're, you know, this is the scene now. Um, and then work it in an editing where it fits. But um, so they, they got into a plane crash trying to leave. Oh, sorry, before that, before that he stole the camera from some institute in Germany, um, which he said he still doesn't see as theft because he was a filmmaker and he had a right to have a tool for his craft. Uh, he needed a camera and there was one there. So he, he needed it. That, it's that simple. Um, <clears throat> and later he, he, did, he did some kind of graduation speech where he encourages a whole class of graduates from, a, from an art school to, to do whatever they have to, like to just disregard, <gasps> completely disregard morality to get their work done. Like if you really want to do something, there's no excuse. You just fucking do it. And um, <laughs> um, so, so they've gotten to a plane crash on their way, I think on their way to South America, on their way to, to, to location. And a bunch of people on the plane died. Uh, and then I think they had a second try. Like, I think it was a, a takeoff failure uh, on their way. And then the second time they left, they somehow got a hold of a dummy or a, a mummy, like an actual mummy that's in the film, and they brought it with them. And because it was too fragile to, because it was too fragile to, to check in baggage, they actually had to buy it a seat, and it sat next to Werner Herzog's brother. <laughs> the um, sorry, that was a lot. I just wanted to throw all this random context and stuff out there just to get like a, a feel for how completely insane the energy is around it and then like kurt said like you 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 see this line of people carrying carrying like wheels and a cannon and just looking miserable and uh and you're like these people look lost and out of their element like um at least the ones in armor do right yeah and there, there's a reality to it that i think is it seeps in because of the reality of the process of making the film. And um, 
so what you were just saying makes me think of a lot of things. One, one of which is uh, supposedly, now I don't know how real this is, but supposedly like for a while, Warner, Her Warner Herzog had his own film school and a lot of it was like, a military style obstacle course that you had to go through or something. I think, that was, I think that's what my friend told me, uh, which would fit exactly with, uh, with this, where Herzog is. Like, that's the reality right now. Um, there's some big, bigger metaphor about that. Um, the, the other thing that's, that's like, something that's really surprising that I did not expect is that Amongst this whole troop of, of conquistadors, they're also, they also have these, there's these two women with them that are in full, like, that era style dresses in the jungle. And they're often, um, it's not just them, it's them and their uh, the leaders, letters, leader, how do you, I forget, I can't say it exactly. They're, they're like hand handheld carriages. So it's like, that that's another part of this it's very like why are they there this makes no sense like why would they what what compelled anyone to bring their ladies these like well-to-do uh women into this insanity of this place so that all that like adds this adds this whole other level of uh disconnect between Conquistadors, and I think, I think there's a process in the film of them slowly losing the civility of their of where they came from as they go further and further upriver, and they they slowly they keep discarding things, and things keep leaving them as as they go deeper and deeper into the jungle. And it's like the jungle, um, the jungle is eating them piece yeah. by like the group starts getting consumed by the jungle piece by piece and with that their illusions of coming from a more civilized place and not being an animal just like everything around them start to degrade yeah um i think it's really cool you noticed like that that um that really got me too with the the ladies and their fine clothing like one of them is the the guy who's supposed to be in charge of this little side mission that goes off which Aguirre, our main character, Klaus Kinski, is just one of the like subservient um, soldiers or whatever to the main guy. Um, but he's he's plotting against this main guy, and it's 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 arguable that he may have been since before they even left wherever they came from to go on this expedition. Um, like at the end of the film, it's <clears throat> it's it's hard to say if where his head is at at the end of the film was where his head was at when he started the mission or if he just lost all touch with reality um because there is that there's this building throughout where everything gets uh more and more surreal and um something i think is really cool was going along and noticing that these ladies have perfect clothing that's not muddy or anything the whole time and then by the time we well I guess we got to run back and go through the plot. But by the time we get to the point where one of them walks off because she doesn't want to be with the group anymore and she walks into where the natives are, uh, she's wearing a different dress than she's ever worn and it's fancier and it looks even cleaner than everything else. Oh, I didn't like, notice that. That's awesome. 
Yeah, and uh, he talks about it in the commentary saying he, he really wanted to just push it over the edge stylistically. Um, like, you just, you want her to, to, to be, she's like set apart. She wants to keep herself pristine. and um, She's just choosing to exit as is. Like, there's this really beautiful way of, and, and what he says exactly is like, and he's like, and, and you think about where, where did she get it? Where did she get the dress? It doesn't matter. It's a movie. <laughs> she brought it with her. <laughs> it's like, yes, thank you. It's a fucking movie. She brought it with her. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, that, so they go off from this, <clears throat> on this uh, little quest. And then I forget kind of how how Aguirre uh, first pulls the stunt of kind of taking over. Um, I think it's mostly through fear. Like, I think he's doing a lot of campaigning sort of in secret that you don't see on film because it's almost like he already has some, some kind of control over the group. Yeah, and he, he, also, he also gives orders on, like, uh, yeah. like underneath the main, the guy who's supposed to be in charge. Yeah, and that's that's a, that's the really funny thing, and uh, something that I that's kind of unexpected with this, and that Gary is never directly in charge until about the end. Like what was that? A Gary is never directly in charge until about the end. Like he's always like he's always he's like the worm tongue. He's always like the on the side, like, and and you know you expect there's a point where they they. They vote in a new emperor, which is which is c- completely absurd. Like they're they're like this. They're they're trying to pretend that they're that they're the they're creating a new civilization, a new kingdom, a new empire, and it's just like a couple dozen people on a fucking raft in the middle of the river. <laughs> they're declaring like each side of the river is part of their empire, and they. He a Gary for like you know forces a vote for who the new leader will be, and you expect him to to put himself up, but no, he does. He puts this other like this big fat nobleman guy. He he, he nominates him, and I think I think that just speaks to like his his like dark cleverness, and that he knows that he needs he still needs a shield between him and his machinations. Because like if when people vault, they don't, he doesn't want them to revolt against him. So so you get you get the sense of how like scheming and brilliant he is. You know it's funny. Um, I had this suspicion before we watched this, and it and it really bore out. Where like we were talking about like the sacred masculine in the in the last episode, <laughs> and, and like a Gary is the dark side of that. Yeah, where he's he has this purpose, he has this goal, and he's driven towards it despite all of reality telling him this is not working, this is not going to work out, but he will not let it go, and his delusion just just like corrupts him, and and that's another there's two there's a couple things I want to say about it, Gary. One is I really wish there was you know those like internet sites that like. Uh, uh, find this look. I want the Agari look. Like I want to. I want to be able to buy his like crazy armor and like slow helmet and it's like badass 
purple and like metal grommet leather coat like i love the way he's fucking dressed and what's crazy is that they never abandon that shit you know that's horrible and sweltering and uncomfortable but he like never seems to take it off the entire movie and then the the other thing is, is like i don't know if if he was if he was this way at the beginning of the film and i only noticed it as it continued but the way Klaus Kinski plays him and the way he stands is he's like always like he's always a scant and crooked. And he's like his his like head is locked to the side. And it's and it's like he's so fucking uh corrupted that his whole body is like jagged and weird. And it's it's I don't I don't know if that if that's just how Klaus Kinsey stands in the world or if that's part of the performance because it's fucking amazing. No, that's that is all performance. Uh, <clears throat> like Herzog talks a lot about how much like basically the whole thing, the whole commentary is just Herzog sucking Klaus's dick. Like you can all <laughs> and you can almost understand some of the words, but mostly it's just blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he's like no. He like he's like look at look at how masterful he is like look at just the way he's walking like <clears throat> like he he looks like a demented crab and he's like, <laughs> he's like and that's that's kind of and the guy asked him like is that you know was that her direction or was that him and he's like no that that was that was my idea but but i didn't you know like imagine him pulling it off this well kind of thing mm-hmm. um but it, it is, it's masterful. He looks contorted. <clears throat> um, Herzog said originally they wanted to make him a hunchback. And mm-hmm. instead they decided to just kind of hint that something was off, but not tell you what. Like that, that fucking costume was, was Klaus. That was his, his design. Like, oh, really? loved the character so much. When he got the script, he called Herzog and he literally screamed at him in the phone just screaming for one hour and then when he calmed down he said he would he figured out that it was klaus and that he liked the script <laughs> uh, like the man was fucking insane like that shit crazy uh probably probably manic depressive because he uh he talks about how he would for the for the the, the most famous scene of the movie right where he's uh if I want the birds to drop dead from the trees, you know? Yeah. Like that, that's the iconic scene from the film that everyone remembers. And to get that take, to get that take, he had to intentionally manipulate Kinski into throwing a tantrum for like a couple hours, just screaming and freaking out, like pissing him off and fucking with his ego until he wore himself out. And after the tantrum, he said, like, he'd come around and realize what I was doing and he'd be on board. Like, as soon as he clicked for him that he was that I was directing, he dropped all the ego and he went straight into the scene and he nailed it. Like, it's so beautiful to me. Like, Herzog is a fucking lion tamer is what that is. You know, that's 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 taking a a dragon and knowing how to, to manage it and get it to fit into your role that you've written. I mean, that's, that's some cool shit. <clears throat> that's the level of, of intensity and manipulation that you have to 
Jesus. I mean, it sort of it sort of fits with the, with the whole idea of like just steal the fucking camera. Yep. Yeah, you know, like like this needs to get made. I don't care how. And like, um, this this will be painful and, and uncomfortable, but it'll be worth it for what, what we will achieve in the end. Which which is sort of inter- it's interesting because it's it's like. It's, it's 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 a recursive like reflection of the film itself where it's like you have to he's having to touch upon madness to to deliver the story of madness it, it, yeah that's uh well also like like herzog is the main character himself like he wrote a story about himself making that story yeah. <laughs> like you are the fucking madman in the woods yeah out of water like everyone around you wants to like quit on you you know i mean like klaus tried to quit klaus tried to quit and and he got on a boat to leave and herzog said if you walk off this set right now i will be waiting for you at the next bend of the river i have five shells for you and one for myself And Klaus stayed, and he said, and then Herzog laughs telling the story, and he's like, he was very good for me for about two weeks after that. <laughs> he was very, very well behaved for two weeks after that. The thing is, the thing is, is, is he saying that? I don't think that's like a bluff. No, he says it wasn't. Yeah, no, I don't think that's a bluff at all. <laughs> uh, man. Yeah. But so, so a lot of things weren't supposed to happen and he just kind of worked them in. Like the, uh, okay. So backing up in the plot, they, they build three rafts and they go down the river and the terrified faces and all the actors are real. Um, then no one wanted to go on those fucking rafts except the natives. Um, yeah, that's, that's until, until what? Sorry, Herzog, Herzog had to, to go on one himself to prove them, like, to show the film crew. So he had to, like, do it first just to call them a bunch of sissies, and then everyone else agreed to do the scene. Yeah. Yeah, no, no when, they, when they made them and they were on them, and those, those shots, those first shots where it's like the rafts are just sort of spinning in the river as they go down it, that's when I, that's when I was really like, man, this, this, this feels like this could go wrong in any moment. Like, because they're literally just fucking trees strapped together. There's like, there's, they're not, they're not modern things. This is not something that was made by a production crew to like, with backup safety. It is literally just a bunch of sticks on the water. (laughs) And they're going, they're going through rapids. You see them like, you see it like bounce and like, and like jostle and and it's i don't yeah i don't know how anyone's stuck with this interesting those rafts are like the local fair um those were built by the natives natives they commissioned them huh so they they actually like herzog wasn't afraid because he he was like well the natives made them (laughs) (laughs) the film crew was like no fucking way bro (laughs) <laughs> like 
no, it's fine. And then he showed them, you know, <clears throat> but it's, I mean, it would be fucking scary in anything. Yeah. It's just scary. And, and he does such a great job that, that, that uh, long shot right before they go in the, into those scenes <clears throat> where it just zooms in on the rapids and just holds for way long. It's like two full minutes almost of just, just bubbling water. And it's like, like those are the moments where I'm just like, fuck, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. Like, <laughs> that's, I mean, if you're human, you've been somewhere sometime and you've stared at some fucking crazy water and you've gotten entranced and hypnotized and just in all of it. If not, I don't believe you're a human being. So like <clears throat> when you see that in a film, it, it at first makes you feel like uncomfortable because you're like, okay, it should, it should cut to something else now because that's the pattern I'm used to. And when it doesn't, something else kicks in and you, you feel like the kid on that rock that time watching that water. And then that pulls you in to the film, into that reality in a way that, that other things just cannot because it, it interrupts and then it, it interrupts and it provides you something familiar as consolation. So it mm. just pulls you further in. And then you see terrified faces of actors who are genuinely that scared. And it is, and like, none of these takes got a sec, none of these shots got a second take. Like this was all first take shit. Um, almost everything in the film he said was first takes. Uh, just one try. And then um, what happens? Then, then the one raft gets stuck in the, the little eddy in that whirlpool. And they can't get out, which is, is terrifying. And while watching it, I'm like, did that actually happen yeah. on purpose? And I guess it was intentional. I don't know. I don't know if it was like they saw that it was happening and they went with it, like a lot of the other stuff or not. But the part about that little bit that I love is that you don't have a fucking clue. Like they get stuck over there, but it, it doesn't follow them. You know, you you're watching them from the other side where the guys are safe at camp <clears throat> and they're talking like, man, they must be getting sick over there. And like, uh, apparently the, the actors really did get really fucking sick from that. Uh, but then you hear in the middle of the night, you hear gunshots and they don't show you. Then the next morning you go up and just see all a bunch of dead bodies, except one, one of them's gone and the oarmen and the oars are still there. And you never find out what happened. You never see the oarsmen again. The jungle just eats them. And you don't see the natives. It's just this like, shit happens. I don't know. Now there's fewer of us. And we keep going. Mm -hmm. And it, that, that's the part that I, I love so much. Like you, you don't, that's so much scarier to me. To, to have these open-ended questions. And when they start piling up like that. Yeah. And you're just what else do you do but just go forward? And it almost adds to that toxic masculine aspect. It's like, like purpose, purpose, purpose. No, we have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> It'll lead us through. We'll, uh, oh, of course, stay the course. But it, I want to go back to the thing you were saying about the, the shot on the rapids. Because... Uh, what do I want to say about that? There, there's, there's this thing, there's sort of this tacit agreement with movies and it's in that term movies, right? You expect it to move. Um, 
and part of part of watching a film is it's sort of there's this agreement that I'm going to stay still while you serve as my eyes in 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 this thing in this piece of so when when it stops and holds longer than you expect there there's something about like that kind of brings you back to the to reality in a way too because suddenly you're you're not only are are you aware of what you know the film is the film's decided to walk in on this thing and there's in that process there's this little like it brings you out of the the hypnotism the 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 little agreement the tacit agreement between you and the film like suddenly you become aware that you're looking at a film and then then there's this other thing where it's like you're looking at the film but then you're also looking at what the film is looking at and it's this very like weird centering transcendental thing where where you're both it both opens up and becomes more artificial like it becomes more real and more artificial at the same time um deepening both sides like putting two mirrors together there yeah and um i don't know i just i felt compelled to to go back and, and kind of talk about that a bit because um it, it's an uncommon thing in movies like it's it's not rare that a movie will just stop and take in a scene for an extended amount of time um without with like no movement that that's that's like kind of verboten and I don't know that it's like it's it's almost like an unwritten rule in, in movie making that you you don't that that part of like this the the hypnotic effect is that we're going to keep this going so that you stay engaged because you're really you're just sitting there staring in one direction at one point in space but we want you to forget that yeah we want you to feel like you're traveling so so um yeah i'm not i'm not i just wanted to to point that out <laughs> yeah i like that i forget which m night Shyamalan ding dong movie it was but it was like one of his first few where i remember people complaining about how slow it was and how there was like a 10 minute shot of orange juice and uh and then I saw it and I was like, that was a great shot of orange juice. Like, I'm fine with you. I'm fine with that. Like, I actually really appreciate, <clears throat> like, even if the movie sucks, I don't care if someone's trying to kind of just do something a little different. And um, I don't know, just change up that that pace and that that, that same patterning that we're used to where where people want to make sure you see the sequel or the second season. So they have to give you exactly what your like cognitive input has been trained to expect <clears throat> so that it, it tickles all those triggers and gives you that shot of dopamine or adrenaline or both. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, well, it's, it's like in that instance, like film becomes closer to like a painting right mm -hmm. or like still photography you, you're starting to engage with it in a different way um right it's almost meditative it's almost like when you sit with an idea or even just silence for a period of time or like when you say a word over and over again and over and over again until it loses its meaning 
there's this perspectival shift that happens that's unavoidable. Um, and that those things are also interrupting your normal cognitive input. So it, it is almost it is almost meditative or hypnotic in some way, I guess, because it's this interruption. Well, it's it's also like for instance with like repeating a word. Um, I, it's funny because that's just like staring at just like a really common object. It's a similar thing in that the repetition and the focus you start to pull it apart and you start to realize the depth of that singular thing and like its complexity and like all these like you start to look at it at different levels or experience it at different levels um yeah and it's i yeah kind of like sinking into the idea behind the object yeah and 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 then also all of the the webs and things that that trail off of it. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. It does to me. Fuck it. <laughs> um, but anyway, these conquistadors get shot and killed, or some yeah. part, or get swallowed by the jungle. And that's actually the end of the movie and this episode. <laughs> Goodbye, folks. <laughs> um, so they. Yeah, then I th the next thing that I remember is there being, uh, like they wake up and there's a rise, like an eight foot rise in the river overnight and all the rafts are just gone. Uh, the, the cannon is still there, but the rafts are just gone. And that really happened. <clears throat> mm. They woke up to start shooting and the rafts were gone and their feet were wet. And he just turned on the camera and was like, act surprised, bitches. <laughs> and uh yeah i'm trying to think what happens after that i uh because they still have a raft they still have one right yeah i think they still are and they built they build more that's right they build another one they build a new one and i think i think that is where it starts to, that's where they uh, a Gary really starts to make it play, I believe, to undermine the main guy, the, the guy who was like commanded by the main right. expedition to lead this one. Um, and that's, I think that's when the mutiny happens. Right. And if it's not, who cares? It's, it's all one big chaotic. Anyway. That's definitely, definitely when the mutiny happens. <laughs> um, and that's a, that is a great scene. Uh, the looks on the people's faces are, uh, the extras are actually genuine fear of Klaus Kinski as a human being. Mm. Like he, he would go too far all the time on set and would be the role obnoxiously, even when the cameras were off. And um, I mean, one night, one night during filming, one of uh, like a bunch of the bunch of the crew were up playing games and stuff late, and Klaus couldn't sleep, so he picked up a gun and just shot three rounds through a tent. <laughs> there were like, you know, thirty 
40, 50, something like that, like a giant crowd of people all squished together, playing cards and drinking. And and miraculously, it didn't kill anyone. It only took off one of their fingers. <laughs> and um, the guy in the mutiny scene that he, like, looks at, the, the, like, kind of round guy that he looks at very fucking intensely until he raises his hand. Yeah. The guy that almost got killed. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it was from that bullet or if it was from this sword thing later. I think it was from the bullet. I'm pretty sure it was from the bullet. Because later, later, Klaus hits one of the extras in the head with a sword and it dents his helmet and gave him a huge, like, bleeding wound. <sighs> and those were real steel helmets from Spain. Did they steal them from a museum? Like he didn't say. Uh I would have asked, but I didn't get to interview him. Yeah. Uh, uh, what it's it's so uh you know it it makes me think about how as a Gary Kinski's always like manhandling everything. Like it starts with that little sloth that he's showing to his daughter. That's the other weird part. He, he, of the two ladies, one of them is his daughter. That he like, why? Why did you? What? What was the con, What was the compulsion here? Like, why would? Why did you bring your daughter into this insanity? That's again, um, again. It's like it's Herzog. So the answer to that is probably well because it worked for the movie. We needed to show. No, 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 but, but I'm, say, I'm saying, yeah, in, in the story, yeah. Like, in, in the story, it makes no fucking sense. And it, and it kind of works to the, like, just weird, it makes you feel like this is not my world, like, even yeah. for. Yeah, and it, it well, it's, it's all these, these funny, like, they cling to their civilization, which if you really think about where they're at, makes no sense. Like, they jail <laughs> the, the leader that like and they like they put up these like wooden bars and it's like what are you doing like what is the point of this like why are you holding on and clutching to this 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 idea of where you're you're from you're this like makes no sense but the, but what i was going to say is about like the whole the whole manhandling so throughout the film he's always like it starts with that sloth and he's like he's like gripping it in his hands and showing it to his daughter and then later I, I think what like you see him on the raft and like someone's like kind of like slouched and sleeping and he's and there's just this scene of him going and like yanking the guy up to stand up and stand watch or something and then it carries through to the this like really this crazy scene at the end where like his only uh his his crew is no longer people it's all just monkeys like it's the whole raft is just infested with monkeys like darting all around and he picks up this monkey and stares at it and it's just it just feels like there's just this through line of him just like grab grabbing things and and pulling it to, to pulling it upwards and like staring at it kind of confused and like throwing it away <laughs> that's yeah that's kind of what he does through the whole thing i mean that's what he does with his power yeah he pulls his power out of nothing like he just steals it and then he like holds it for a minute and then he fucking wastes it 
<laughs> but like, oh, so the monkeys also stolen. <laughs> Where did they come from? What? But like, again, again, Herzog doesn't tell the story. We stole some fucking monkeys, right? He goes, <clears throat> uh, like, they were, he just tells it like, they were on, they were getting ready to be shipped to the States uh, and they were in some crates. And so I walked up to the guy that was loading the plane and I waved some random piece of paper I had. And I said, do they have their vaccinations? The vaccination, shame on you. And he looked very upset and he walked away and, and we loaded the monkeys up and we went off. <laughs> and, then, and then after the film, they, uh, he's like laughing, telling us about, oh yeah, some of them jumped ship and, and uh, ran away. And he's like, but as soon as we were done filming, we set all of them free. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Like how how there's not how there's not the making of Aguirre as the best film ever made. Like, I don't know. Uh. Yeah, so, okay, uh, along the lines of things I thought were unplanned and were planned, when Klaus, so they have a horse, they still have a horse, they lose the cannon at some point, but they still have the horse, and they they have it on a raft, which is pretty precarious to begin with, and, like, one time, Aguirre freaks out, and he turns around, and he's, he's talking to one person, and then he turns around, and the horse is in his way, and he's like, get out of my way. And the horse falls over. And it's like, really, like, it, it shocks you. You know, like, you're not yeah. used to something like that. Like, a horse falling down out of fear. It really fucking hits you. You're like, this this character, right? Like, he's making a wake. Uh, and not just with the people and not just with, like, practical decisions. It, it kind of gives this feeling like there's there's something almost supernaturally determined about him, even though he's lost. <clears throat> and, uh, and like I thought that that had to be just something that happened, but they carefully planned that shit and they tranquilized the horse right before the scene. Uh, and they tried it a couple times to figure out like when, how long it took to to set in. And then they timed it and he just scared it and it was like ready to lay down anyway. So it was just like, ah, fuck, oh, fuck it, I'm I'm down. Um, and I, I can't believe it worked. And that was another first take, like, um, and then, <clears throat> like, by the end, God, actually, I think my my favorite scene isn't isn't the most popular scene. My favorite scene is the scene where they see the boat in the tree. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's so high up that there's just no way, no way, like conceivable way that the tide could ever be that high, that the river could ever come up that high. Um, and like <clears throat> the dude's laying there like, that's not real. Mm. Uh, or he's like, there's a boat in the tree. And the other guy says, that's not real. And then I forget some shit happens. And then dude that that saw it in the first place is laying there and he's like yeah it's not real that's not real and this shit's not real and that's not real and then a spear lands in his leg <laughs> doesn't even blink 
he just goes spears not real or the arrow <laughs> not real or whatever and it just becomes this existential like surrealist monologue all of a sudden i i mean like that part is just so fucking perfect to me because at that point yeah you've you lost it you've lost all all traction on like what's what's real and what isn't like people have just been disappearing but no one's actually seen any natives yeah like they, they saw some on the shore and they ran away but the whole fucking film they're getting attacked and shot with arrows and poison darts sometimes out of nowhere sometimes like you just turn around and there's a character who's dead now with a poison <laughs> and nothing else happened it's just like yeah and and every time every time it gets too quiet that's when someone dies and they they learn that which i think is really cool um at one point he like agire forces the guy to to play the flute and he's like for the men but you know it's actually because he's like combating that silence he, yeah. he thinks you're gonna die it's too quiet oh that that was that's another thing that flute playing it's, oh it's it's really weird because it's amazing because the the um it's the same song or the same little ditty each time but it's but it's i don't know if it's just because of the instrument the beginning of it always sounds to me like it's like a it cut it's playing like an 8-bit nintendo game like the quality of the sound of it which i know is not the case that's just what that set that instrument sounds like so it always starts off like it almost feels, it sounds like distorted or like that it's getting filtered through some like electronic compression or something and then it'll it'll do that and then it'll get really clear and whistly and like it'll sound like a flute at the end of it because of how it's played but the beginning of it's always this weird real like like i said like an 8-bit like chunky sound and it's so strange the the um you know the thing about one of my my favorite little moments in the whole movie it, which is kind of hilarious is that there's i think it i don't know if it's when that guy is like having that this is not real this is not real but there's this shot of it's just like on this guy with a halberd it's one of the soldiers and he's like looking around and then an, then a spear as big as him goes yeah. and hits him in the chest and he's like this doesn't hurt as much as i thought it would and then he falls over and dies <laughs> And uh, what's funny is that, like, I don't know if this incident happened before or after this movie, but there's a there's a famous thing with Herzog where he's being interviewed and he gets shot on camera. Oh yeah, yeah, and he does it. He's sort of like, he's like, I was just shot. Like, it's very like matter of fact. That's really interesting. It is basically exactly that scene. It's, yeah, he gets shot and he's just like huh i believe i've been shot yeah uh what's your next question yeah, <laughs> yeah that's really that's really weird i bet it yeah that's fascinating huh yeah and i think it's something slightly different in german uh i, I think like if you get the subtitle it's different uh because Interestingly, you can't find, I, I can't find a English subtitled German audio version here. Like I can't find it anywhere. 
Yeah. Uh, the stream. I, but, yeah, I, was, I was wondering if there's a not because it's clearly dubbed. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I I wondered if there was a non-dubbed version, but I as far as I can tell, I can't find it either. The, well, okay, so if you watch if you go on YouTube and type in Aguirre full movie commentary, you will get the full film in German and Spanish or whatever South American languages. There's like several. Um, actually, a lot of the extras spoke different languages and didn't understand each other. <laughs> um, but then it's, it's the commentary with the subtitles in English and the original audio. Huh. But I couldn't even find it to like pay for it to, to stream it somewhere because I, I wanted to for the second watch just to like but I, I didn't end up doing it a second watch like I normally would like to for these things. I just watched the commentary and it ended up being like a different movie. A completely different experience. Yeah, I, mean, I missed because of uh, My Best Fiend is probably my favorite Herzog film and it's it's just a documentary about he and Klaus Kinski's relationship, their professional relationship and um, how that bled into the personal at times and how fucking crazy all the time, like making movies, the two of them together was. I would definitely, I would definitely love to cover that at some point. It was, um, it's, it's, it's funny. I think I've seen, trying to, I haven't seen Klaus Kinski in many, many things. But there's a there's a famous spaghetti western called The Great Silence that he's also in. He plays the villain of, huh. uh, which is also this very weird surreal movie, where like the main character is a mute, and he's this like gunfighter, but he doesn't have he doesn't have a six shooter. He has like a German Mauser, like not Mauser, like the the like pistol, the the, the standard like German Nazi pistol thing, automatic. Um, he has one of those and it's really weird like is like it feels like he like the main character is like someone out of time that's that's set in this movie so yeah and that's and he's this really intense villain character in it um i i'm i'm really i want to know more about period because it's just that's i'm <sighs> I mean, it's sort of amazing because, like, they needed each other to really make the best either one could make. And, like, I get, like, th this film couldn't work without Klaus Kinski. And Klaus Kinski couldn't work in this film without Werner Herzog because there's something about their combined insanity and the, the, the sort of agreement to how extreme both are willing to push things that I think makes, that I think made this movie possible. Because this is not a reasonable thing. This is no. not like nothing about this, especially like as you revealed more about what you, you know, heard on the on the commentary. Like this, <laughs> and it, and again, it's it reflects the madness of the main character of the film. Like Werner Herzog choosing to do this and do it this way, and it's like, it's like. I don't know. It's this like compulsion. Like this has to be made, and we're gonna do it no matter what. And we're gonna stick to our guns no matter the danger, 
and the chaos and the terror that this is going to imbibe into everyone surrounding me. It's just, we're just going to do it. Um, it, you know, it's, it's funny, it brings it, it brings up this question about like you know Klaus Gibbs is talking about leaving right he's going to leave this production, but how how do you leave this? Like uh, <laughs> they had they had motorboats mm. with them. Yeah, uh, that's that's how they got those shots at the end and, where yeah. he's, and that was actually Herzog driving because he didn't trust anyone else to get the the pace right. Mm. So he's like driving the motorboat and holding the camera that he stole. <laughs> Man, I don't think I don't think something like this can happen now. Like Earth, it does. Um, you know, it gets all it gets completely canceled before. <laughs> like to to go to these extremes. I feel like there's there's a lot happening there metaphysically. You are agreeing to like meet someone else in your insanity and to have that like there's like a pact in that. <clears throat> and I think that's why Herzog's waiting around the bend. Uh Herzog's telling him, like, like, we're both dead. Like if you leave, this is over for both of us. Because like that it was some kind of pact between two willfully possessed humans. Mm-hmm that this thing was going to happen um and that defies all rationale and that defies all logic <clears throat> because what the fuck is a movie who cares yeah. it's a right you can justify easily and rationally justify never making this film in a million different ways like i'm sure that that was not cool in some way to the natives extras. I'm sure that like putting the, the flute player um, was in Herzog's words, a retarded beggar from Pacolpa <clears throat> whom they, he, they hired and Herzog took a really strong bond. Like he and, and this guy formed a really strong bond. Um, but they also took someone who was mentally challenged and on the street and put them on a raft in the fucking middle of danger. Um, and it turned out fine, but it easily, easily could, could have gone south and uh, <laughs> even more south. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, like, I'm pretty sure I, 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 I never really looked into it because I just assume that <clears throat> I just assume that most people who are insane and manage to pull off greatness have some really dark shit going on. Yeah. But like, I vaguely remember hearing about Klaus Kinski uh, sexually abusing one of his daughters mm. and that coming out within like, you know, within recent years. Um, but who knows? Uh, I, I haven't looked into it. I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I, I did find it a little bit uh, eye-raising that Herzog wrote this for Kinski. He wrote the role for him. He said it wouldn't have happened without him. And 
there's that line at the end that choice to put the daughter in yeah uh, and i think i you know it could have been it could have just been that herzog's really tapped into some deep shit and was pulling some stuff out that he didn't know like he didn't actually know anything was going on but he picked up on something there and it just came out in this role for him yeah but i it's really interesting because it, it seems like you put the daughter in there so that you would get this sense of softness for Aguirre. He had to be somehow relatable and likable. He couldn't just be a tyrant or it wouldn't work. So, so the daughter's put in. But by the end, when the only crew left are the monkeys and he's still just as resolved to, you know, start this new great empire of his, in fact, I think it's gotten grander. Like he's gotten these, like the, the scope of it is even larger in his head, right? They're yeah. Emerge from this trip and like take on the Spanish crown and, and destroy them. Well, I think from the beginning, that was kind of his thing was like, there can be no traitor greater than me or whatever. Like he wrote, he wrote up all that, that document and was going to send it back. And, but, but it, it, it definitely got more intense. It got more uh, weirdly. It was like there was almost like a righteous fervor, but it was like righteousness for betrayal, which I thought yeah. was interesting. <clears throat> uh, like he felt like that was a noble cause to, for him in his place. But I think it's interesting. By the end of the movie, he is saying like, "My daughter and I will start this, the purest bloodline ever." Yeah. And, a dynasty that'll last, you know? Um, and it's, it's really, <clears throat> and she's already dead, right? She's, she's already dead. So, but it, it is, it was creepy to me. It's like, I don't, I remember something about Kinski and sexual abuse of his daughter. And then this role that Herzog wrote for him climaxes and Kinski, like losing his mind and being like, I'm going to be with my daughter. Is that, it's hard to tell when it comes to artists, right? The people that are uh, like mainlining source and, and really, really like committed to, to letting things pass through them and, and like putting themselves aside to let that, that completed circuit happen. They get some shit that they shouldn't know. They get some shit that, that plays out later. And you see this like in everything um basically uh so it's 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 impossible to say but i I found that a very interesting shape yeah that's very that's really strange yeah there there's like some like that that quality of channeling like that some truth comes out whether intentional or not because you're 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 just you're not, it's not that you're consciously thinking about stuff, it's just that you're open and it's, you're letting it flow through you. Um, and because of that, there's this weird honesty comes out that you don't, you don't even, you don't even know it's the truth. Like you're unaware of it. When I was, that reminds me when I was in my like late teens, <clears throat> I, within a little white trash town in uh, Gulf Coast, Florida. And 
I had like a, a good group, a really close group of friends there uh, for a while. <clears throat> and we would all hang out on my porch. And one of our friends was very, very airy. And we all did a lot of drugs back then, like a lot of just weird shit, whatever we could find. And <clears throat> and this friend would like, she would stop making sense sometimes <clears throat> and just kind of talk randomly, like really random shit. But then some of those times, something would come through that was like uh, so on point and relating specifically to me in a way that couldn't be um, manufactured, like things that this friend didn't know about. Sometimes things that didn't even, hadn't even come to pass yet. <clears throat> and um, it just, it reminds me of that. There's, there's something really interesting about also, that's also happening with homeless people, um, with, with street folk um, who are like rambling about God and the devil. And then suddenly like a message will come through that, that hits you. And you're like, oh, that, ooh, that was for me. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, <clears throat> I think that happens. <sighs> I, I, I wonder, and I like to think about and consider what, what that is, is that with, with, say, a science fiction writer, oftentimes they're predicting the future in really big ways <clears throat> and really uh, far-reaching, spanning changes that haven't happened yet. And, you know, there's, there, there are some good arguments to be made that in a lot of those cases, it is actually people with the no on the back end but there is also that predictive uh, channeling aspect of people who create just happening to let messages or spirits speak through them. So when it's a guy on the street and you're walking by, it's like, you're the focus. So for that moment, like they're, they're turning their radio dial into you and then maybe the thing that comes through is innately for you because of that sometimes. Yeah. Whereas someone like, I don't know, like I think about like Philip K. Dick is like thinking about macro stuff all the time. Like he was always thinking about big turns and cycles and, um, and how that related to the, um, the microcosm too. But there was, there's this kind of like being tapped into these big rolling motions of the universe and, and society and thought and ideas. And, and so I think really big ideas came out because of that. Like it's, there's this tuning thing that happens just the same way as like a channeler could stop taking, maybe, maybe a channeler could stop taking individual clients and start listening to like, geopolitical commentary from you know and and maybe maybe then they start channeling different things um i don't know i think there's a lot to the radio metaphor i think that that might be as technologically complex as i'd like my metaphors to be <laughs> i yeah i think 
I think that has, and it's got different frequencies. And so it's, it's happening at different scopes. Like what you're talking about with, uh, with Philip K. Dick is he's, he's connecting to this much larger thing. I think some people don't have, like they may have that source, but it, it's, it's possibly only coming through on a very personal level, like a very human scale, like person to person. And they may, they may not just have the capacity to go bigger than that. Or maybe, or maybe if you do go bigger than that, you, it is madness. Like you're going to have to accept a certain level of madness that comes with it because I mean, there is there is a quality in that where, where you're just suddenly outside of mainstream reality, and at the whatever you know, if you're tapping into like this larger scale, you're even further out. Mm. Right? Um, and I think I think the the danger is becoming unmoored. Like yeah. you no longer you no longer have that that toehold on, on the earth. You're just swept away um that's interesting i i've had some personal experiences that definitely confirm that for me that there's something about having being anchored that like you absolutely have to have um i've had times on entheogens like good times on drugs medicinal and important spiritual times on drugs where it was like I could go further I could like go further out I could perceive more I could understand more right now but I don't know if I'd know how to get back and and that was that was that was the last time that happened was before I met my wife and I think if something like that happened now it would be a different thing because there's that anchor there's there's someone that I really feel like I have to come back for. Yeah. But I think if there's not, uh, the input of information and like the, <clears throat> even if it's all good, even if you're getting like insights that are beautiful, like you're getting like fed how to fix the world, but it's just too much. So you blow a fuse. And then, and then you're like ranting about Jesus thing repent and get a gun you know you know what it reminds me of is that they um from what i understand in um in the in jewish communities like you're not you're not allowed to study kabbalah until you're at least 40 years old and have grown a dick No, like, yeah, so, so there's, I think part of that is so that, A, you have experience in the world, but you're also connected to it in a way so that you don't, you don't become, become unmoored. Um, never go full schizo? Never go full schizo. Well, it's, it also, and it's funny because, I, I, you know, there, this whole movie is about a journey up a river, right? And... I had an experience with uh, something called Yahe, which is a, which is a version of ayahuasca. It's it's a different brew, it's a Colombian brew. 
and it was a three-day thing and the shaman was talking about how when you take this you're it's a snake that's swallowing you but that's also the river and it's this trip and you're the you're going up this bend of the river you're getting swallowed and you're traveling up it and then you're getting shit out at the end and the process is such that it, it it's going to it's going to alchemize you and things are going to change and transform and it's and it's so interesting because in this movie agare his whole reality is getting dissolved by the river <clears throat> and he steps and gets swallowed at the beginning. Like we're talking about, like you know, it starts with that shot where they just focus on the rapids, and that's almost like the teeth, the waiting teeth. Yeah. And they and they you know they go up it, and then like that reflects into the guy, the one guy who's a I think it's the, the slave, the slave that came with him, and he's, he's like, this isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't real, and it's because it's it's getting dissolved. The river is eating every little bit of civilization and empire and all this other thing that Gary is brought with him. And I think the thing is, is like, if you view it as that, if he could let that go, he could come out the other side and it would, it would be this amazing, uplifting thing because it, the, the fullness of it would have gotten dissolved, but he won't let it go. And so he just, he's stuck in the river. And the movie ends with him all alone on that raft spinning around. And it's, and it's because that thing, that thing is going, the river is going to take it from you. And if, you just have to let it go. And if you let it go, you can come out of it. But you won't. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. <laughs> I think. Uh, Aguirre, the wrath of God is the archetypal recipe for a bad trip yeah <laughs> like you have to be on drugs for that no you just have to cling to your purpose without any cognizance of your surroundings or the other beings around you or yeah that's well said uh that is that's great <laughs> yeah because he could he could lose it and he could just be subsumed by the jungle the same way that the wife, I believe, of the original commander who he mutinied against. Um, <clears throat> because at some point she decides that she she doesn't want to be any part of it anymore. And right after they get attacked by natives, she walks in her finest gown, as we mentioned earlier, like directly into where the danger is directly where the the arrows and the spears were flying from she just puts on her finest gown and walks into it yeah she um, surrenders she gives into the jungle yeah and she's probably still running around eating mangoes Aguirre <laughs> <laughs> is fucking dead you know Aguirre is dead <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's dead, mummified, and entombed in that boat in the tree. <laughs> and she's actually the queen of some fucking dynasty made of gold. <laughs> Sucking down coconuts like juice boxes. She makes it to El Dorado, yeah. <laughs> and then finds out it already had a name. <laughs> Who knew?
You mean it wasn't called something Spanish originally? <laughs> I think that's really interesting with the ladies coming along because I, I don't know what from, but I remember that being in my head from some kind of like British colonial bullshit story where they're like in the fucking Sahara fighting lions and cannibals and, you know, some bullshit version of it where it's all extravaganized from like the 70s or 60s or something like that. Maybe even earlier. Some old movie. And just ringing in my head of like ladies in fine gowns. And it's like, you you don't, what are you even, oh, okay, it's it's the English. (laughs) We will not adapt. (laughs) They're like on fire. Worried about the tea getting cold. <laughs> you don't understand. This is civilization. This is how it should be. <laughs> Fuck all of reality. <laughs> it really is that, isn't it? Like what we were talking about with Beverly, with um, pinning everything down and putting everything in a box. <clears throat> it does seem like it's just that colonialist, naturalist, like go around and draw a picture of it and then tell the natives what its name really is. Yeah. And that's kind of like, I think that's just developed a life of its own. And that colonial project is now, um, or maybe, see, you could say now it's an egregore because it's been fed so much and it's been like built up into this deity. Uh, But you could also posit that perhaps it, it was floating around already. And it just latched onto our world and started seeping into our minds at some at some time. Well, I mean, it at this point, it is the like, it's the black iron prison of Gnosticism, right? That's that's what you're trying to shuck off and escape from to get a source of reality. But it's this funny thing because it's the what it's describing and what's on the other side of it is the same reality. It's just this lens through which are this this blindfold that's been put over your head. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's always taking this shape or form, but this is definitely the modern the modern version of that. Interesting. I think I've kind of always thought about uh, I really I really this is definitely not to shit on Gnosticism because that's impossible. You there's too much to cover, right? It's like anything that's too weird of an interpretation of the Bible is called Gnosticism. Yeah. <laughs> they were just regular Christians at one time and um over the course of the people who get to decide history and name things and categorize things. They decided that the Gnostics were this weird sect, but in actuality, it's like many, many different, many, many, many different ways of kind of interpreting. And the whole point of it was this uh, sort of DIY interpretation. Like how do, how do we, how do we make what's in this fucking book make sense? And how do we, how do we turn this into something actionable that actually enriches our lives? Because, it seems like this Old Testament God is really fucking cruel and then things suddenly change and everything's pretty chill. I don't get it. 
Um, so then they they try to make sense of that. But like that being said, I do feel like there's some kind of <clears throat> trap within Gnosticism that people these days fall into, where there's like the second that you start believing this world is the Black Iron Prison, or like like people putting it like this world is is the trap. You've just put yourself in a trap that you created yeah, by taking that is the trap. Right. Like like taking on the worldview. Yeah. It's it's your world. So like whatever you subscribe to then becomes your world. Um like Gnosticism is incredibly useful. I and when I say that I'm meaning this this more general, more commonly accepted um idea of it that we're talking about where kind of the physical world is a trap for souls essentially or a, a prison for souls that yes is held by the demiurge who usurped god much like a gary yeah that that it, it's um well it's funny because it is materialism it's that this all this is all an empty dead matter and and that that that, that is the thing you have to overcome that's that's the to me and, and actually it's funny because the the ayahe trip part of it was realizing this that the, that the gnostic trap is the thing it's describing huh the the black the the idea of the black iron prison is the black iron prison that's incredible and i love it yeah, that's what you got. The world is alive, is is inspirited, is like connected. It, it's all there. It's just this idea that it's not there is what keeps you from it. Whew. That's good stuff. Yeah, so so that's its poison. Is it's telling you the truth, but the truth is what traps you. <laughs> oh, I love it. <clears throat> Yeah, that I think every real revelation I've ever had has been a, a fucking riddle. And it's also been something that's literally like woven into the structure of the universe so that if you get down to basic um, logic stuff, it's like self-evident. It's just really, really difficult to get down to that that point of ab- abstraction and still maintain sanity. Yeah. Um I think that's why we have, I think that's why there are spirits who choose to grow in this world as plants or as fungi or whatever, who are like, like, all you have to do is prepare and consume my flesh and I will hold your hand and I will take you on this journey of better understanding yourself and your world and like how to be in it in a less painful way. But it's really hard. It's hard to do that stuff. It, It, because we do need those initiatory experiences. We need those moments where we are violently cracked out of the current mainframe. But we need someone to hold our hand through that. And we've lost, like m- most of us in the, the Western world have, you know, Western and North, uh, Northern Hemisphere <clears throat> have lost that connection and lost those traditions. So it's like, it's kind of on us to like make it for ourselves to go take those five grams and put on a sleep mask and earplug or, um, you know, to seek out, to seek out someone qualified 
and ask them to take you on that that journey. And after the first time, it's it's not as difficult for all the subsequent like smaller minor um, sort of breaking out of one's mainframe. Like once you've lost a world, I forget who it was that originally said that. I think it was Jeff Kripal who said you have to lose two worlds before you can be a mystic or a, a magician, something yeah. like. That. Um, because the first one cripples you, and then you get a second one, and. If you only get the second one and you stay on the second world, then you believe that it was the true one all along. And the first one was just an illusion because that falls into our duality trap. It's really easy to slide into a black and white. Oh, the thing before that was black. Now I'm in white. Yeah. Once you lose the second world, then you're into the no man's land of like worlds come and go and I am still here. And yeah, I don't, I don't know how, <clears throat> I don't know how we're supposed to do that without the shaman and the tribe where we grow up taking us off when we come of age and being nearby in the bushes to come and bring us water and food and a hug or whatever, if we fucking need it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and sometimes, sometimes life just happens and it doesn't have anything to do with the ceremony and and the ceremony is the light the living it but those are those are like calls you can't say no to and those are those are calls if you if you resist you die like that's that's how mine was um in in a weird way because i had like i had other ones in between but the major one was a long path of addiction that like just destroyed my entire life and my whole conception of who I was. But, uh, but like, it was like, even before that, there were smaller ones that maybe prepared me for that. So that I knew that even once I lost everything, I knew at that moment that my life wasn't over because for the only reason that I, that I had taken a lot of entheogens before and I had, experience that feeling of I'm gonna die my life is over everything I knew was a lie nothing is real and then I still was there afterwards and it's like only through that do you realize that that you aren't like you you are you because you are in relation to reality but you are still you even if reality breaks apart and becomes something new and that's something that you can't ever learn from a book or from a story and ah, fuck I don't even remember how we got talking about this now <laughs> getting swallowed by the river I think it's I think it's the spirit of it's, it's making us go there um, interesting because Aguirre's choice has led him to that initiatory process his yeah. own choice like his, his conscious decisions made him land there and I feel like him being the last one alive at the end of it, like he could have, he could have chosen to see the light then and be like, oh, everything's temporary. Even my, my ambitions uh, and melted down and become a jungle king. Maybe, or maybe just got speared, but been like, <laughs> like at peace as he died. I don't know. <laughs> 
I choose to believe that he's just caught in a rapid that earlier crew and it's just swirling around forever and ever. His kingdom just between a couple rocks. <laughs> I mean, I did, I think that's really cool that the further along and that like when you get towards the end, it doesn't look like the raft's moving anymore and you almost can't tell which direction it's going in. Yeah. It's just so perfect. I found that that so many of those little things that I was like, wow, that's weird. That adds to it a lot. Like they were all, the, that stuff was all on purpose. I mean, it's just so impressive to me when those, those little things that, I mean, now it seems little, maybe that, maybe that sort of shit didn't seem little in 1972. Right. Maybe, maybe you could watch that and be like, Oh, obviously he slowed the raft down. So it looks like they don't know where they're going. Cause it matches them being lost in, in reality. But these days, I mean, fuck, it's just all, all this pandering and like, um, that there aren't, there aren't those kinds of attention to detail and there isn't any credit given to the audience. Like the, the audience doesn't get the respect of like, Oh, they'll figure it out or, or they'll, they'll actually pick up on this. I have faith in them. It's like, no, no, not only we're going to show what happens, we're going to, we're going to say it. We're going to narrate the thing that the character just observed, even though you just observed it too, and you get it, we're going to narrate it in case some of the people watching are dumb because we really don't want any one-star reviews. It's also everything, everything has become more artificial because of the production process and CG and, and like, so even works of the imagination used to have to used to have to actually like construct a reality for people to move in and they don't do that anymore it's all it's all like it's all vapor like it's just it's just something stored in a computer drive and it's them matching it to a shot so like the reality of my fakeness is no longer there. It's just fake fakeness. And like, how dare you? Because like, you're not, the, that, the truth isn't coming out that way because it's too planned and too constructed and too self-referential and um, it's too limited. Um, and it's funny because the, the whole the whole thinking why they were why the whole a little revolution of like computerized graphics and everything it was going to be this thing of ultimate freedom and somehow it's it's just made things more restricted and worse and and it's the whereas you got to you got a Gary that's just the whole thing is made in conflict with the reality of, of the process. Like the reality has, is shaping it. It's shaping in relation to that. And that's, people aren't doing that anymore. Or they're doing it less. I'm not, I won't say that it's not happening. I'm just like in, in the larger mainstream that, that is, that is falling to the sky. Yeah. Big time. Big time.
<laughs> Speaking of reality. Yeah, I really like that. I think uh like if we get better microphones or something, I think we should get condenser mics so that they pick up the room. <clears throat> and like even if we have uh like our wives are home and there's sirens going by or birds or whatever, like I, I like leaving that stuff in. We'll have to talk about that because I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking about getting a mic, but it's going to, I'm, you know, it's just whatever. I don't have this expertise or knowledge just when it comes to like recording or any of this stuff. Sa sound is funny to me. I, I've, I've done so much like creative study with in relation to the visual that audio, audio stuff like blows my mind. It's still, I remember I was, I went to visit this guy in his recording studio. He, he had set up uh, in this like loft space that's not far from where I live. And I was just talking to him about it. And the fact that like, you know, he, he had all these like boxes and crates like shoved and built and shoved into the corners and stuff. And I'm like, so what is the point of all this? And he's like, well, it's to, it's because of the dimensions of this room, certain sound waves don't, like they don't fit right. And that creates dissonance and then like the clarity of what you're trying to record. And it was this real like, oh, sound is space. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's some, that's some shit like you could, go rabbit hole on that for the rest of your life um <clears throat> it's one of those things like how deep do you need to go uh -huh. because if you're <clears throat> i mean if you're doing if you're recording an album you go as fucking deep and weird as you need to go if you're doing music like that's that's all on you like how you want to do it some people can can go in the room with a $30 microphone and record an album that slaps. Like, un, do you know Unknown Mortal Orchestra? No. Unknown Mortal Orchestra is awesome. And <clears throat> that dude recorded his first album in his bedroom and had never played a show live before. And got so many plays that he got signed for like huge festival gigs as his first like few shows kind of thing wow um like he may he may have played locally and stuff but it was like he didn't really play a lot uh and suddenly he's you know on bills at giant like three-day festival stuff and he just did what he had did what he could with what he had and made it work yeah <clears throat> That's usually my favorite shit. I I prefer the people that that go like I have. It's it's somewhere between. It's somewhere between like. Like a dirt witch and a mad scientist. Like I, I like the middle ground, <clears throat> where like Herzog, you get this, 
this impulse like i have to make this fucking thing i have to make it um but then you give a little bit of thought to that kind of care of uh precision and stuff too but like but not too far and not so far that you start to control the spontaneity right like controlling the shape of the walls that the sounds bounce off of but not trying to micromanage what happens with the sound you know that kind of i like i like that balance a lot um something that struck me when you were talking about like cgi is supposed to be it was supposed to be this freeing thing where where suddenly you have all the options i have this i have a lot of feelings about options and how uh how they can be a curse like yeah for instance i will never ever ever fuck with pro pro tools or any any kind of audio software where you can synthesize literally anything like oh i can make it sound like a guitar you want it to sound like oh you want a slap bass i got that make anything you want anything at all right here just this one box does it all to me that's a fucking panic attack that's a, a nightmare of options that is it's too much like i, sh- I shouldn't have all the power of god <clears throat> i shouldn't i'm i like to make music and i like to use instruments to make music and an instrument is inherently an object that can make certain kinds of sound and not others and the not others part is like fucking crucial because if my guitar could sound like an organ, I'd be like, maybe I should write an organ song every time I pick up the guitar. But if I pick up a computer that can make anything, how do you make those choices? To me, that the, the falling through the, the sieve of like available resources boils down all these possibilities to like, like through, through the lenses or through the filters of what's possible, and then you get like this soup of like, oh, here's what I can do. And that narrows down like significantly down to a sane, manageable level what, what you want to do. Right? Because, fuck, what do you want to do? Like, what do I not want to do? <laughs> like, I need someone to, to like slap me on the hand and be like, well, <clears throat> and, and, that, and that someone is reality. That, it, that someone is my, my financial status, that someone is like the actual gear sitting in the, in the room. <clears throat> and if it, if it doesn't make the sound, I can't make the sound. So ooh, maybe I'll find something else here. And nine times out of 10, when it comes to like my favorite albums, there's, there's something about them that sets them apart that was accidental, that happened because they didn't have a resource or because they didn't have a capability and they had to make do. And like those moments you're pulling in you're like calling in the fucking muses as uh as cavalry in those moments yeah that that so that is i've thought about this in in relation to just the creative process in general and that's the magic circle that's a circle of protection and magical practice that is that is the limitation you're drawing this and saying 
this is where I am. And yet it's a circle. So there's infinite, there's infinite space within that circle. But I have to exclude things for this process to happen. Yes. And that's that, that, and I, if I were to teach a class on creativity, that's the thing I would, I, I would start with. It's like, what are your limits? If you don't have any, you're going to have to make them. That's the first choice. What is this not so that, so that it can become? And yeah, that to me, that's, that is what the, the magic circle is. It's, it's that, it's setting that boundary and saying, I am here. And that's really interesting because <clears throat> I think some of the greatest art is definitely made in contrast to what it doesn't want to be. Like that is sometimes the initial motivating driving force is I saw this thing and it was fucking dumb and I hated it. And I know exactly why. You know what? Fuck them. I'm going to go make direct contrast to that. <clears throat> and the audience might never know. But like, usually with that kind of intensity and that kind of purpose behind it, it's going to be good. Hmm. <laughs> For sure. I'm hearing weird noises, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's really weird the way sound travels here because we, we live in a little village in rural Denmark, but it's like kind of at the top of a little hill that goes down in our yard and then it stays at a lower level for a while and then it goes back up and there's some housing and so like anything anytime things happen in the housing developments the way that it echoes sounds like it's coming from either like the side of our yard or the front of the house when i'm in the back that's really strange so it like bounces up one of the hills and comes towards you guys kind of yeah it's almost like it it bounces like down and squares over and then hits our side of the upslope and then up so it's like the sounds are shooting up and i don't know where they're coming from so my mind tries to fill in the blanks like a blind spot and it just like points to a certain direction and then i'm like no 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 hang on hang on I sit with it and I'm like, no, it's definitely not coming from there. You're just trying to make sense of this. It's, it's the neighbors across the way trying to shut a gate. Okay. <laughs> it's really funny. Like I did, I did not intend that to be topical, but <clears throat> it ended up tying into the, the yeah. sound. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> but yeah i like instruments to have limits i like to know where the edges are because then like then you know how to bend the edges and push them and kind of like find those borders too uh if you if an instrument is supposed to sound like this then if i make it sound like this i'm doing something cool probably <clears throat> because it's not how it's supposed to sound and speaking of tom waits that reminds me he used to have this thing about like he would get into an instrument just long enough 
to record an album and then get good enough at it that he started to kind of sound good, like he knew how to play it. And then he would quit and try something else. <laughs> like, okay, I've, I've used up all my authenticity on this one and now I sound like a professional. So let's move on. So it's always it's always uncertainty and being new. There was a there was a famous graphic designer I forget his name, but his whole thing was like, um, any type of project is worth doing twice, once because you have no idea what you're doing, and then the second time because you do, and then it's done. And and sometimes like not even the second time. Yeah, like so sometimes you. Sometimes I think that process and the fact that like if you make something like that and put it out there, a lot of people will see it for just what it is. And then a lot of creatives will see it as the process and they'll actually feel that like, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. They were stumbling through this. This is great uh, because it carries a different energy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think sometimes the second step is unnecessary. I'll say mm-hmm. that out. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it, it's funny. I just realized, like this, like what you're talking about with like I'm I'm picking this instrument and I'm I'm exploring the entirety of this instrument. That goes back to the whole thing. Like I'm going to chant one word, and this one word is going to reveal all these things because I'm just going to stick with it, and then eventually all your all your associations have run their cycle mm-hmm. and you break down to having like no associations left. And then you're just left with like this abstract isness, Like actual novelty. Yeah. <clears throat> well, is that novelty or is that the opposite of novelty? I was, it's funny. I'm thinking like, I think it's kind of the same thing. I think, I think they, <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is Solomon was right and all is novelty. <laughs> uh, oh, that's Solomon. <laughs> is that a, is that is that from the Bible or something? He says all is novelty. Like what is yeah. that? Song okay. of Solomon. Um, basically talking about uh, how any of any of our human endeavors they just amount to novelty like it's that whole one of the better recurring themes in the bible I think is um, set your sight not on temporary things you know like Solomon asked for wisdom <clears throat> above everything else. And uh, yeah, and, and was the <clears throat> preeminent magician of the era. Like they actually, my wife's uh, theologian and her bachelor, her master's thesis was on King Solomon and how in the Bible. <clears throat> they he was so popular in that time period as like through historical documents not not through just the bible like obviously the bible is not a 
primary historical text. Um, but uh, there are primary historical texts that show that there was a campaign to paint Jesus as a better magician than Solomon. <clears throat> there was like a, a propaganda campaign, essentially. Not not insidious like propaganda, but there was there was a campaign that was spreading the word that Jesus is a better magician than Solomon because this, Solomon had such a reputation, such a foothold in people's consciousness as this preeminent magical figure that it took a campaign to even get Jesus' name out there. Like everyone was pretty much satisfied. Like Solomon was the shit. They was like, it's fine. We're good. We have our magician, our dead magician to work with and to to call upon that current for power and whatnot. We don't actually need. Like was that's the feeling you get is like they had to make a campaign because people were like, we have Solomon, like why do we need a Jesus? which <clears throat> I hope I'm getting this right. Um, I know she'll listen to this episode and I will fucking hear about it if not. And then we'll have to have her on and she'll explain it all, which would be amazing, actually. Maybe that's what's actually happening here. Is that... <laughs> <clears throat> That'd be great. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting stuff. Um, but the whole Song of Solomon, like the biblical context, he's just talking about everything being vanity. Like anything of our mortal world is, you know, temporary and we should fix our sights on, on eternal things. And the core message of that is golden and it's true. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that that gets interpreted through our resting neoplatonic materialist or materialist mainframe like it's it's one or the other and you get this oh okay so that's a, a justification like in modern christianity there's this oh that's that's our justification like the world is just it's just here for us god just made the world for us so we can subjugate nature and all things in it because we're you know we have the divine right all is all is vanity i just it supports that if you're seeing it that way but it's not meant to to do that, I don't think. I don't think it's meant to take agency away from <clears throat> spirits or from uh, spirits who choose to uh, embody themselves as plants or animals in this world. I think that it's really easy for us to overlook now where we're standing that animos, animism was it right until what is it like 500 years ago or something yeah, i don't know the timeline but this thing, so. <clears throat> like before the enlightenment we we were all spirit believers everywhere everywhere so yeah it's crazy like you, you get you get someone standing in america shopping at walmart hearing all his vanity and it becomes like a this physical world doesn't matter. It's just about spiritual cultivation. And that's a separate thing from the physical. But I think what Solomon's suggesting is that <clears throat> all our pursuits pass away. What we get to take with us after this life is the cultivation of the spiritual that we 
really put ourselves through um, and is the whole purpose of being here. It's kind of like, <clears throat> it's kind of along the same lines to me as how uh, ancient Egyptians believed that the only actual sin, like the only wrong thing that a person could do was to ignore the inner work. Mm. Like, that was that was what would get you screwed over when you got your heart weighed by Anubis was um, if you just indulged in the the vanities of the physical and did not incorporate right it's this incorporation of both which kind of leads back to the iron prison thing um, which is interesting it's like you see okay so maybe there were people back then that were doing the same thing. And just like fuck it, sensual pleasures are all there is. We're just we're just gonna live our lives and we're gonna try and have a good time and not really think about anything or be introspective or or have any self-critique whatsoever. And yeah, so so that aspect, I guess it it appears to be that that's always been there. And that um that it's always been you can choose to ignore the spiritual aspects of things i think in those times it would be a little different given that you weren't actively brainwashed to do that Hmm. but uh but it was still there you know it's this is is really interesting in relation to uh the martial art I practice, which is, which is a Taoist in nature and its meditative qualities. And as I'm coming to understand it, which admittedly, I'm not like a scholar in this stuff, but it's just, this is what seems to be the case with, with engaging with it in the Blitz process is this, this whole idea of like, the process is really about like fully incarnating into this reality. Like, oh wow! Like the sense I get, it's like you're born in this world, but like, it's very easy to kind of forget that and become disembodied. <clears throat> to like not and and the whole process is about just fully inspiriting the body you're in, and in that way, it's it's almost like you're bringing spirit deeper into this world. Oh wow! So deep embodiment, deep incarnation as a means of re-enchanting at the same time. Yeah, and and that 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 actual because so, so many so many spiritual practices are like contemplative or meditative, and in this and in and in Taoist standing meditation. That thing is your body itself. So, as I've done this practice, it's like it was just—it's this weird thing. Like, like I feel like for most of my life, I was just—I just existed, squished into my head, and like my my body was just sort of this thing that dangled beneath my consciousness or something. That's incredibly relatable. 
Yeah, and I, and I, I think it's that's common, whether people realize it or not. That's where most people are, right? And the thing that that this practice is is like suddenly my body is this very alive. Uh, liquid malleable thing and like i've i've like just me sitting here like i feel the ends of it but what's strange is that the, the ends are just sort of like fuzzy suggestions like it it goes beyond that and um and like i said i don't i don't know if this like i'm not I'm not a deep Taoist scholar, and so like there's probably people that further along this path may say like that's not actually what's happening, but that's what it feels like is happening. Is that the, is that the process is like you start out born, but if you don't do anything about it, you don't fully get born into this world. You don't get connected to it. You can you can let that all dissipate, and so you don't actually you don't actually end up experiencing reality, really. Now, do you think that that is <clears throat> an analog to what happens in a in a shorter, more condensed, ritualized initiatory experience, or is it different? I think it's part of it. I think I think I think they're. I, I think. Um, I think the Taoist practice is like an ongoing thing. And like the initiation is like one of the big condensed bursts within this. So there's an initiation within it. I, f I feel like it because there's things I've experienced doing this practice that relate back to some of the like psychedelic plant journeys in a way. Okay. Uh, one of the most obvious ones, and this is something that's kind of only really started to um, emerge in the last like year or two, is that like I, I get these like crazy like spontaneous movements, like my, and it's almost like my body is just compelled to do. And when, when it's in this, it's almost like this trance state, and I, it feels like I'm, it'll feel like I'm gathering energy from the heavens or something, and it's like, it's these things that like also happened in this in that psychedelic space that psychedelic journey space where it's like my there's just this feeling like my body needs to do a thing and don't try to control it just let it happen and it's these kind of weird alignments and releases and it's a similar thing that's really interesting uh <clears throat> my practice is you know it doesn't it doesn't include any martial arts at the moment but uh Hopefully it will soon. I, I really want to start taking Tai Chi. But um, I find that I find that really interesting because something I've noticed with my own spiritual practice is that my magical practice <clears throat> is that I'm essentially getting to the same place that I would get on mushrooms if I pray the rosary. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm still of mind. I'm connected in spirit and in, in energy and in awareness. And to the point where I know I'm not projecting anymore. Um, 
I know that, and this is like the last little bit of a mushroom trip, right? This is after you've gone through the medicine that they drag you through, and then you come out the other side and everything's pretty, pretty lucid. And yeah, it's just, I've noticed that that happens to me now when I just get in the zone with my my practice. If I do a specific working or if I just pray a full rosary even, like I'm in that space and it becomes real that <clears throat> like in those moments, I might not have anything huge or profound happen, but I am experiencing in those moments, the recollection of all the other moments that I've had in that state and then drawing them in as real. So I'm sitting there at the, the little altar and I, I pray and then I'm, I'm reminded because everything's still, I can like just revisit those moments when I was, you know, in the woods down by the fire, having eaten five grams or a time when I was microdosing and meditating in my bedroom back in Ohio. Like <clears throat> all these all these different moments where things seem too incredible to be real can be further realized just like sitting with that. I think that's really, really important um, to revisit that like through a means that doesn't have anything to do with a, a plant spirit ally. Yeah. Uh, trying to think if the story's okay to share because it's not my story i think it is um, <laughs> well uh so there was there was a person that uh used to kind of like facilitate these journeys um, uh and they were they were talking about their process too and that they you know they were going to all these like attending all these groups where they would they would take medicine and then you know they would have these crazy wild experiences and one time they went and they you know they they hand out the medicine and they're, they're like these like it was it's like powder and a pill basically you know it's various different plants and he, he this person has the wildest craziest night like it's the most psychedelic thing they've ever had, they've ever ever experienced. And then the next day, they're they're doing integration, which is them or talk, or, you know, in a circle talking about the night before. And that's when they're they're told by the, the person leading that group, like, I gave you a placebo. <laughs> Holy shit. That was that was basically like that was basically like sugar in a capsule. Holy and, shit. Uh, and and this person talked about like I felt so betrayed and like a fool. But then after after I sat with it, I'm like, holy shit. It's not about the plants. <laughs> yeah. Well, some aspects are, but it's like, yeah, the actual shift in consciousness isn't about the plants. Yeah. Uh, the guidance 
and the medicine, like leading you to what it is you need to do is about sometimes about the plants and spirits of the plant. But yeah, I mean, I think something everyone overlooks is that they have their own fucking spirit team. Like everyone alive walking around on the earth has a plethora of spirits who wants things to work out for them. And by work out, I mean like them to get the medicine they need to learn the lessons they need to to run into the forces in, within the course of their, their mortal life that mold them and shape them so that they can keep those changes when they die and they can be better after that. Because I think that's the whole point of this place. It's like we, we come here to bounce around against shit and come out changed. But once we get here, it's up to us to like manage to make something good out of that. Yeah, it's really, it's really, I think I remember saying this to someone who was, you know, another spiritual seeker sort of person who had never, never taken psychedelics and had only done like meditation and stuff like that. And they were, they were kind of like, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you feel the need to like take a drug? And what I said to them was like, well, the thing is, is it lets you know what's possible. Just like what you're saying, it lets you know what's possible. It lets you know what's, what awaits further out. But then you still have to do the work afterwards to bring that more and experience that more in the, into the everyday. Right. Right. I would have also said, what exactly do you mean by drug? <laughs> like, why do you feel the need to eat a mushroom? <clears throat> well, and it's immediately the gif of like, uh, wacko Warner taking in the deep breath before he does all of the states or all of the countries in the world in alphabetical order or whatever. <gasps> <laughs> well, because you know, your great great grandfather and my great great grandfather were the same fucking mushroom <laughs> <laughs> because they breathe air and they're closer in relation to us than plants because they were the first organism to crawl up onto the land out of the sea to eat rocks, to make soil so that algae could grow on land so that eventually we could grow on land, at least according to the materialist myth. <clears throat> it's fucking insane that we don't worship mushrooms. Just... <laughs> it came from space, they terraformed the planet, and then they let us grow here and they literally eat and consume everything that dies and they turn it into fertile soil. Like a master alchemist. So yeah, what do you mean by drug? Like I could get it if you're saying acid, right? Like as we talked about Beverly, there's something about <clears throat> like it's ergot, but it's ergot that's been altered into something new. And there's almost like there isn't this history through time of this organic being that is hosting this chemical. 
So it isn't it isn't part of directly part of any specific thing. And that's fascinating. All those designer drugs being just like these open portals that we've made as humans through just fucking around in labs. And they're just kind of floating around. Like oftentimes probably through, you know, nefarious uh, spook type sources and then probably monitored, you know, probably monitored afterwards to see like what kind of effects those have and stuff. But but shit, it's really weird. Bunch of open portals without any gatekeepers. I think about like, you take mushrooms or you, you smoke some salvia extract and there's like, there's this price to pay. You like, you, you're going to struggle for, for getting something out of the underworld. Just like how, like most of the underworld myths, um, <clears throat> where you go to the underworld to get something and come back, you fail, right? Like most of the time they fuck up and something goes horribly wrong, but there's always, there's always that price. And, and when you don't, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to think that through materialist mainframes, we have gotten weird ways to experience spirit that don't have some kind of overruling or overseeing spirit directly involved. That's weird. That's, that's weird. That tickles my noodle. Yeah. It... And there's there's like a whole be- like bevy of them that all have like weird like two HC or something. I, I forget the there's a whole it's like the guy that synthesized MDMA. I think on to like synthesize like a hundred different analogs or something. Two um, CB was two uh, CB. Maybe that's what I'm trying to think of. That's one of them. I mean, that was that was my experience. I, I had an experience with two CB, and it was well, it's. It's for a later episode, but it was one of the most transformative, terrifying, and just generally weird experiences I've ever had. Like, yeah, there's that's one of those times it was like before that 2CB experience and after that 2CB experience. That's really funny because that's, that's what Yahe was for me, for sure. Yeah, I really, really want a chance to experience Yahe or Ayahuasca in a proper ceremonial context because <clears throat> mine was mine was appropriate enough. It was some shamans in the Midwest who trade peyote for ayahuasca from the South American shamans they know. Mm. And it was fine. I didn't actually experience the medicine because it was a very strange vibe and everyone kind of just went to sleep inside the TV. Like everyone took a couple sips and then just went to sleep. And I, I, no one told me that I was allowed to say mass medicina or I would have said mass medicina all night long, but I just, I guess it wasn't the time. I, I did definitely have some really good dreams. I just didn't remember them. I woke up feeling very renewed. Like, honestly, I had some kind of like almost Virgin Mary vibes. Like waking up from that nap in the TP was very refreshed in a sort of holy, pristine, 
white garments, fresh sunlight kind of smell. And that was what it felt like. But I, I didn't have any recollections. Yeah, I've, I've been in circles with like using psilocybin where it just conked everyone out. With psilocybin, wow. Yeah, like it just like, it was almost like everybody just needs to rest or something. It, it's kind of, it's almost a vibe. Um, well, that's that's really cool though. Yeah. <clears throat> when it all kind of comes together, it's like, even though I was the odd man out that night, <clears throat> I still thought it was really cool that everyone else was on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, I do. I do think I want to do ayahuasca again. I don't think I'm necessarily want to do yai again. <laughs> what was that? <clears throat> Why? Well, um, I'm confused as to what the difference is. Yeah, I, I've never heard anything about like an experiential difference or anything. Okay. Or, um, like the intake or? Well, when I've been told, Yahe goes to darker places. Oh. It's, it, it, it's much more earthy. And um, I've heard it described as the dark feminine, you know, like. Oh, God, then that's what I want. <laughs> I mean, and, and you, you know, what you're just saying about 2CB being fucking terrifying. This was terrifying. There was, it was really intense and weird the first two days. But by the third, the third one was like, I, you know, we're, you're talking about being like schizophrenics being channels. I felt, I feel like I, I know what it's like to be a paranoid schizophrenic now. So like that was the, that was the place that got me to. And it was like, yeah, it was probably one of the single most terrifying experiences of my life. Also, that same that in that same time period was one of the most like spiritual, powerfully bright, uplifting experiences of my life at the same time. Like that happened in that that same chain of events. Huh. But yeah, after I came back from it, it, it was like, you know, we talked about being moored, unmoored from reality. That's what it felt like for a while. Like just like what the fuck am i what just happened um and it's literally from what i understand it's actually brewed differently so like ayahuasca is typically brewed and i can't remember the name of these plants there's a specific leaf that it's always brewed with buenesteras copy and something else yeah it starts with a c so so that's what a typical ayahuasca Peruvian brew is, from what I understand. Yahe, which is from Colombia, is brewed with different leaves. So it's it it's a different aspect of the spirit. Uh, and I think they refer to it as colors. Like it's a it's a different color of the spirit. Yeah. Um, at least oh, that's, I, that's how it was expressed to me. I like that a lot. I just <clears throat> I, well I have I have a. Uh long-standing uh love for asherah who is uh <clears throat> well she's <clears throat> she's almost too many things to know how to talk about and i've tried to make sense of this in my own head as a western person standing here in the present day looking back <clears throat> and thinking about like 
how how does a spirit actually be uh and so like asherah was the israelite version of of uh, astarte and inanna and later <clears throat> later we have christianity coming in and all the goddesses kind of migrated to Mary because we as humans only left one female divine archetype available for the taking. So all the regional spirits, the land spirits, the cultural spirits, um, they all had to adopt to stay current, like a, a new form. <clears throat> and it's right around, you know, it's not too long after that happens that we get Astaroth showing up in the grimoires. And to me, that's just, these are just different colors of the same person. <clears throat> and there are other, there are other magicians I speak to that, whom, whom I respect very much and whose opinions I respect very much, who believe that, that the forms themselves are also persons. <clears throat> and that's something to consider too. But my main focus has always been like trying to make fun, trying to make sense of this one female spirit that I really feel a lot of uh, resonance with. <clears throat> and to me, the feminine, like there is a, there is a, a divine feminine that is this, this dark, almost oblivion. Uh, and I think like my, my first, undeniable spirit contact where like someone showed up and told me their fucking name and I had to go look up their name because I didn't know who they were it was Kalima someone who usually doesn't show up for men so much especially western white men like <clears throat> um, so I have this this love for that energy um, but in my love affair with, with Asherah who was written out of the Bible entirely, almost, um, save for a few slanderous remarks, uh, but was still worshipped in Israelite homes well into the second temple, temple period. Um, and shows up in Egypt um, and Assyria and like just basically she is the, she is one of the preeminent goddesses of the Middle East um and takes on many different forms she's let's see she is a uh, she's she who treads upon the sea she's she of the grassy meadow she of the the desert plateau uh the lady of um, lady of wild beasts uh, the serpent woman something about dragons too there's a lot going on there but she's also the tree, the tree, um, presumably the tree of life, but also sort of the serpent. Like all these things kind of mesh together in different cultures. Um, it's very strange when you start putting them all together. And I kind of feel like when we get to the Middle Ages, when we get to uh, late classical Middle Middle Ages, we get uh, Astaroth showing up in the grimoires, who is, which is a pollution of Ashtoreth which is a pollution of Astarte and so on, which was used as a derogatory term after she had kind of gotten canceled. 
Um, <clears throat> so she gets canceled and then we have some silence and then, and then this demon shows up in the grimoires who is sometimes a male and sometimes a female. And to me, I, I read this and I'm like, this is, it's not the same person, but it's analogous to Kalima. Like my experiences with, with this entity is that it is this multicolored, multi-tier, right? She's the queen of heaven and earth. Um, and then later in the grimoires, Asherah became the duchess of hell, the duke, the duke of hell when she was a male and the duchess of hell when she was female. And I just feel like that's like in the West, <clears throat> we developed this issue with sacred femininity, with the wild side of feminine, and we demonized it. And when we demonized it, that aspect of her literally showed up in the grimoires as a demon. But in reality, it's no different than, maybe not no different. I can't say that, right? But in reality, I think it's closer to something like Shakti. Like, I think there is this volatile, but creative uh, and nurturing force of the dark feminine that we do actually have in the West but so that what we get is we get all these different colors of the same being and we get them through different cultures, the same way that you might get different colors or aspects of ayahuasca or that, that great healer that has been assigned to our planet um, through different chemical combinations, through different combinations of plant spirit that open that door for you. You are entering through the kitchen door or you're entering through the front porch, or you're entering through, you know, like there's different ways to enter the same house almost. I this was pretty long-winded, but I, I just think it's really fascinating because like you saying that resonates really strongly with me with, with my experience of a totally different, at least as far as we know, um, female spirit that has all of these many different permutations and cultural contexts to kind of sift through to, to try and figure out like who she is or whatever. But I, I just love that, love that. Um, referring to it as a color is I think so much better than even like a shade or an aspect. Like the, the word color just fits so perfectly with how it feels because it is, when it comes to spirits, it's, it's more mood than anything. It's it's a, it's a presence and it's like you either feel like you're in a church or you feel like you're in a graveyard or you feel like, you know, it's very, very much presence. Yeah, that's, it's, it's also, you know, what you're talking about where there, it still exists. We're just going to shovel it all behind Mary, which is can't help but neuter it. Right. Because like Mary's the mother and you're not unless you're a real weirdo you're not gonna fuck your mom and like the 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 thing that you get I think with these dark feminine aspects is that the, the sexuality is a big part of it oh yeah yeah so like but that's that's not 
as far as I've experienced it, that's not what Mary is. Mary is not that at all. In fact, I may have brought this up on, on some other conversation, but the thing that I realized, because I'd never, I'd never prayed the rosary or engaged with the Virgin Mary at all, uh, is what I, what I, the thing that sort of struck me and I kind of got out of praying the rosary is it's like, oh, I get why this is the Virgin Mother, because your relationship to your mother as a feminine being totally excludes anything sexual. That is what the mother is to you. So your mother, even though she did have sex with your father to birth you, that is not a part of your reality to her. Right. Right. Yes. I fucking love that. I think you nailed it there. And so, and so the act of taking these very wild, crazy feminine deities and then just like chaining it to this idea of this virginal act, it makes makes no sense so of course it's gonna they're gonna come back up in this very dark and fucked up way <laughs> imagine if you were a human and someone sat you down with a gun to your head and was like you are no longer sexual or you don't exist and what happens then is a split in personality, right? Because that's how you survive. I don't know that that's what happened, but like that's what comes into my mind is you don't get to exist in the world interacting with these humans anymore unless you conform to this archetype. <clears throat> my mind, she's like, well, I can't fucking do that. So I'm going to split. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm bigger than you're giving me a box for. So like I'm going to be in several places now. wild yeah man it's why (laughs) i also i have i have like a personal um i don't know if it's actually upg even right i don't know if it's my personal gnosis or if it's actually just some daydreaming thought i had but I really like it. And that's the idea that uh, that Asherah actually knew what would happen to her. And she still wanted Jesus to be a myth. So she like helped facilitate because she needed men to have some idea of decency as an archetype. Oh, that's... Wow, that's... Uh... See that now that now we're getting into the territory is like am I do I want to share this? I don't know. <laughs> Are we still on a recording? <laughs> um no, one of the things that happened when I when I did this Sacred Heart Novena, I think I was talking to Samson about this or Tim. Nightbird radio. A podcast featuring Kurt Huggins here. Yeah, I, I was telling him about the this Sacred Heart event I did, and like I would get these like journeys after after doing uh, after doing the prayers. They would just spontaneously unspool like a psychedelic experience. 
And one of them was, was this, this thing of like connecting with, with Christ energy and the fact that like, um, he could copulate with Diana because like only the brightest bright light masculine could connect with that dark of a feminine and not get subsumed. What comes to mind when you say this is like, <clears throat> how many people in the past under a strict Catholic mainframe or Protestant mainframe had a similar experience and then lost their fucking mind? <laughs> <laughs> because it's so contrary to the mythos, but it works metaphysically. It, there's something about it that it's trying to show you. <clears throat> I feel like that that experience is like, like look at how the lines drawn by human is wrong. Like I feel like that's all it's really saying is like <clears throat> these ideas are wrong. Christ isn't like his her son in a literal sense. Otherwise, it would be really fucked up if they were having sex. Yeah. So there's almost the breaking of taboo almost as an initiatory thing to like lead you to the real parameters of the equation. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think also like, isn't the, isn't it traditionally like part of initiatory, initiatory, initiatory experiences are about breaking taboos. That's, isn't that a framework for some of them? Yeah, some of them, definitely. That's, I think, I think there's some practices that are entirely formed about around taboo. Yeah. I mean, cannibalism is a big one. I don't think it would pull the same weight. Like if it, if you lived in a society where <clears throat> it were totally socially acceptable to eat your slaves, there would be nothing mystical about it. It would just be like, well, we're short this month, so we're going to eat one of you. It, would be it wouldn't be mystical. But when you don't need to eat a human and you fucking choose to, that's different. That's entirely different. And that, that is a taboo. And that is like, a, oh, they, they had a reason. That, that leads to this like this mystery of a reason. And that it's funny because that's like one of the ultimate ones. Yeah. Ah, delicious. <laughs> long pig. Yeah, long pork. God bless pirates. Was that a pirate term? Long pig? I'm pretty sure that's where it originated. Uh, I I heard it first in Stephen King's Dark Tower theory. Oh, really? Yeah. Never read those. They, <clears throat> I read a few Stephen King books growing up, but like my favorites were Eyes of the Dragon and because it was just this fantasy story it, it, with a really long payout, like long torturous process of someone getting 
their dues kind of thing. Hmm. I really liked it. It didn't, it wasn't a typical Stephen King story at all. <clears throat> it was really interesting. A lot of stuff about like father, son weirdness. Um, and uh, I think it has this crazy cover by Ian Miller, I think. Oh, I wouldn't know, but I'd like to. Because uh, I, because I remember, because my father always bought, he read like millions of novels and he read a whole shitload of Stephen King. And I remember when that book, yeah. And I remember when that book showed up in the house, I was like fascinated by the cover and he hated it. He was like, this is his worst book. And I'm like, I never got around to reading it though. Was, yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. My dad, my dad had, Like when I was little, we lived in a little apartment and we didn't have like a garage or anything, but we had a loft for storage and uh, it was just full of cardboard boxes full of fantasy and sci-fi novels mm-hmm. because he didn't throw them away for some reason. Like he, he would read them as an escape and then just keep them forever. Yeah, it's the same with my family. Like it, it was funny. My dad had this like massive stack of, of horror books and then my mom had this like ever-growing stack of romance novels, <laughs> you know, either side of the bed, and like, you know, the I wasn't as, or the romance novels didn't interest me, but I do remember like the, the they always had this weird like oval cover, like there's always this oval with like a thing. I think they, I think those were the Harlequin romances or something. I think, um, and then also that my favorite thing was like, it seemed like they always had cutouts. It was like weird cutouts. Like it was a window and you'd open up and then there was like a, a like bodice ripping, like romantic scene happening on the, on the other side. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. I, <clears throat> yeah, I didn't have that experience. My mom didn't read really like she'd read magazines and stuff, but mostly like, I think for entertainment, she'd watch soap operas or argue with me. And, <laughs> but dad, like, I mean, it was really weird because it wasn't just fantasy and it wasn't just Westerns and sci-fi. Like there was also, um, or yeah, I'm sorry. There was also a, like trying to think like Tom Clancy bullshit, Hmm. like espionage and stuff like that. Um, So there was high fantasy, like, um he was big into Anne McCaffrey. I think he read everything by Anne McCaffrey. Like mm-hmm. the Dragon of Pern, um, the Dolphins of Pern, all these like like people who would sing and cut crystals and then train dragons because every 10 years or whatever, like some spores would fall from the sky and they'd have to use the dragons to kill them. Um and all of these books were based on their role-playing game campaigns. Yeah. Like like Anne McCaffrey apparently would just write down what happened when they played the interview and then fucking make it's, bank. It's shocking how many of them started out that way. I, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. I, it's hilarious. And there's something like about me that wants to like step into a writer archetype and then laugh at that. Yeah. But, but then like the magician in me is like, no, fuck that. That's, that's maybe more legit. <laughs> It's, it might even be more legitimate to just record what happens in a in a game where there's like a combination of random chance and human choice. Yeah, it's it, 
it's funny i because uh, i briefly played not not even really i think i i think i played like half a dozen games of dungeons and dragons but i remember there was there was a friend of mine that was running he was starting a campaign and it, that was his plan is that he wanted to run the campaign and then like turn it into a novelization and i'm like this this seems absurd but then i learned that one of the fantasy series that i really enjoyed reading was the same fucking deal like, <laughs> the guy had done the same the guy had done the same thing his name's raymond e. feist it's like the Crondor novels or something, and uh, Magician Pug, I think is his name. Was that his, or, or I don't remember, but but it was it was the same deal. Apparently, those were all built out of fucking D and D games that he played with his friends. <laughs> I almost feel like that's something that would work better if you didn't plan it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if you're like, I'm gonna write a novel. Will you guys? come over and play and then like it's the fucking lamest dnd game ever. <laughs> no i want to order another drink <laughs> no we're getting drunk <laughs> let's kill everybody what fucking game was that there was some playstation 2 game where there's like the beginning and there's like a, a secret little cutscene <clears throat> where they're playing dnd it's like I shoot magic missile. Oh, I have no idea. Like you mean the game like goes meta for a second and breaks its reality to? Yeah, it's 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 like a a cutscene before you even start the game, like within the options menu or something. Oh, I think it, I think it was Summoner. Pretty sure it was. Anyway, I'm sure you could YouTube it. It's pretty. <laughs> I've never even I've never even heard of that one. So you haven't gotten uh, called into work yet? No, it's like it's past name. It's weird. These guys. Um, so most places I'll I'll get hired, and then there's usually like a. They usually start about. I mean, most design or advertising places start later than most, but they usually it's usually around ten a.m. For whatever reason, these guys. Uh, sometimes it's like twelve thirty or one and then they're like hey can you do this stuff and then what'll happen is that it'll go late into the evening like seven or eight and i don't know why this particular set of people is set up this way like i don't know why that happens but it's for whatever reason and it, it's i don't mind because i like i i charge them for the day anyway so it's like yesterday was mostly waiting around like i don't i don't think they started bothering me till about like i think it was about 12 30. and then i did one thing and then like two hours later they were like oh can you do this for us and then i did that and then like way another like two or three hours go by and they're and then and then i finally i'm like hey is there anything else you guys need because it was like it was like 5 30. and um and i i was supposed to have a class that night although that got canceled so I was like, I was like, I hope that whatever you need, I can do within this like set amount of time. Otherwise, I'm going to do it after the class. And they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give us a few more minutes. And then it was this one other thing. So I probably drew like three storyboard frames the whole fucking day. But it, <laughs> it was mostly like me twiddling my thumbs, like constantly like checking Slack to see if they're. I don't know. It's just weird. 
that is weird because it's like it's like the time that you're not working is more painful than the time that you are because you're staring at the screen like not starting anything else because you're waiting to see if you have to start something for work yeah, it, what eventually will happen, like if if it continues like that during the day, is like I'll find other projects that are like personal stuff. I'll start working on that shit, like a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, or else, you know, I'll start drawing stuff. And what's funny is usually, usually that's the that's the uh, that's the catalyst that'll make them. It's like, oh no, 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 no! Don't don't you dare work on your own thing. <laughs> Here. That's like a, I always say. Like, if you want to make the food come, go smoke a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's it's funny. There's a uh, I call it the uh, the designer's curse, which is whenever you save a file, never write the word "final" in the name of the file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's like if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Yeah. <laughs> Because you'll end up with final 1A, final 1B, final 2A, final 3, 3C. It just keeps going. When you get to like, yeah, like 8Z. <laughs> it's done. It's over. Well, before they have a chance to prove you right. Yeah. I feel like this is a good place to call it. Yeah, I I, th- I think we uh, I think we we fucking went deep. We went on our own river. <laughs> I think we came out though. Yeah, well, that's because we were perfectly fine with abandoning our sense of purpose before we began, <laughs> and we accepted the dark feminine and brought her. <laughs> I don't feel like the episode like deserves the. <laughs> the qualifier of like we talked about the divine thing because it wasn't enough of a topic but but shit it, it would be fun to just put that up following. <laughs> yeah god i don't know what you're gonna what you're gonna list for this one. <clears throat> i'm always yeah. shocked by how, how fucking deep you go with listing all the shit that we talk about like, <laughs> i'm just gonna like have a drink in a couple hours and then listen to us and just type down funny things that i think of like, I'll be like, oh, we talked about this thing, but it sounds funnier this way. So that's what I'll write. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Spotify, Spotify doesn't know if people actually liked what they listened to. They oh, just, they, that, are those tags mostly for Spotify? They just count plays. Oh. <laughs> people don't have to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit. All right. Well, that was that was uh, the finest and most professional treatment of Aguirre, the wrath of God that the world has ever seen. Yes, I think we've I think I think we are the pinnacle. We are the platonic solid that all things will be derived from. (laughs) And uh, I'm really glad that we finally got that whole, you know, divine feminine thing sorted out for everyone else. Yeah. It only took two straight white guys. Yeah, and it really was only like a third of the show. So, yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is kind of fucking around. We're serious. Uh, All, right. All right. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And um, next week, we're going to return with something very special that Kurt has yet to tell me 
about because he needs to pick it. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I'm, uh, I've been wrestling with what to go with next. And uh, whenever we get bored talking to each other, we'll start having guests probably. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Well, yeah, we'll just have to make ourselves. I, there are, <laughs> A few, there are a few people and a few films associated with people that I'm like, these are combinations I want to have. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. This has been a blast. Yeah, this has been really fun. Um, <clears throat> I know we're still finding our stride, but I feel like we're finding it a little quicker than I expected. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to more of these. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. All right. Till next time. Till next time, indeed. I'm the great traitor. There must be no other. Anyone who even thinks about deserting this mission will be cut up into 98 pieces. Those pieces will be stamped on until what is left can be used only to paint walls. takes one grain of corn or one drop of water more than his ration will be locked up for 155 years if I, Agire, want the birds to drop dead from the trees then the birds will drop dead from the trees I'm the wrath of God Earth I pass will see me and tremble. Whoever follows me in the river will win untold riches. Get to pray. Lest God's end be uncomely. <laughs> 